Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. For many of us working in creative industries, and even those that aren't, we assume that competition simply comes with the territory of becoming successful. We've been taught that the only way to get ahead is to push others out of the way as we climb the proverbial ladder all the way to the top. But it doesn't take long to realize that this only perpetuates the stressful and high-pressured environments that ultimately lead to burnout, exhaustion, and downright depression. With so many of us working from home right now, it's more important than ever to foster mentorship and create learning environments with our coworkers and our colleagues. These are the types of environments that are going to allow people to learn the skills that they need to transition to new roles and advance in their careers. And that is what today's episode is all about. This is the second in a series of three episodes where I talk to editors who have made the challenging transition to director. And if you missed part one with David Rogers, it is one of my favorite interviews ever. I highly recommend it. It's right before this one. But in today's episode, I speak with Andy Armaganian, who is a seasoned editor that has edited such shows as Smallville, Supergirl, and Arrow, just to name a few. And in the past two years, Andy has successfully transitioned to director and has added shows such as MacGyver, Hawaii Five-0, Legends of Tomorrow, Flash, Blindspot, and Stargirl to her list of directing credits. And she has done all of this by building genuine friendships with the people that she works with. She believes in working hard while also teaching and sharing her knowledge and her experience with anybody who wants to learn from her. Preparation and a willingness to ask stupid questions have earned her the respect of her colleagues and it has built a reputation of being easy and fun to work with. And by her own admission, Andy simply doesn't know how to work in an environment where cast and crew are not like family. That, my friends, is a world that I want to live in. If you want to learn what it takes to make a major transition in your career and how to do so by building lasting friendships and, frankly, by being nice rather than stepping on others to climb to the top, then Andy has a multitude of knowledge bombs to inspire you to forge ahead and take the next major steps in your career. All right, without further ado, my conversation with director and editor Andy Armaganian. I'm here today with Andy Armaganian, who's a Los Angeles-based editor and now director whose credits include shows such as Stargirl, DC's Legends of Tomorrow, Hawaii Five-0, Supergirl, Arrow, Blindspot, The Flash, MacGyver. I mean, frankly, I could probably go on for 10 minutes about all your various credits and accolades, but I would rather let you talk about them. And I just must say, first of all, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on this call today, especially with all the travels and things that you're doing. So it means a lot to me that you're here to, to share your story and your sage advice. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. So what I would love to know with to start 
is I want to go all the way back to the beginning. There are a lot of really, really great takeaways. I know that you're really big on mentorship specifically, trying to help other women get into the industry and move up to the, the ranks where you are now. But it all starts somewhere. And I would love to know why you made the choice to enter Hollywood of all places. Well, I grew up, uh, my mom was an actress. She was in uh, not a lot of stuff you would have seen, but Caddyshack is her claim to fame. I think I've she, heard of that. That's one I might have seen. So who did she play in Caddyshack? She played Dr. Beeper's girlfriend, and she's most famous for being the lady to sit and vomit in the Porsche. <laughs> oh, so yes. Everyone knows her for that. I was going to say, what a story you must have told a thousand times by now. I was actually a pretty little kid, but uh, I remember the cast, would, we were the only locals, so the cast would hang out at our house. So Rodney Dangerfield, Chevy Chase, they'd just hang out at our pool. Never Bill Murray. That would have been amazing. Yeah. Well, I would say that still Chevy Chase and Rodney Dangerfield. I did not have them hanging out at my house growing up. Yeah. Ted Grant was the one I remember the most because he was just so polite and nice and just a good person. But that kind of started the bug. My mom uh, made my sister and I both do Mother and Me actress uh, casting tryouts, which were torturous and horrible if you are not someone who wants to be in front of the camera. And uh, I was very shy, so that didn't work out. But um, it did make me want to be one of those people over there. So I wasn't sure what it was, you know, did the whole went to college and in college learned to produce. I actually started as a commercial producer in the University of Florida and did low budget stuff. So. Well, going back a little bit and speaking of people that don't really want to be in front of the camera and that would rather be behind the camera, I would say that that's probably going to help us segue to where you started your career because you haven't been a director your entire career, right? Mm -hmm. So where exactly. did it all start for you? What was the direction that you first headed? So I started, well, actually I started as an indie producer. I moved out to LA and raised $100,000 to do a movie and promptly ran out of it because it cost more than $100,000 to do a movie here and taught myself the Avid uh, weekend courses and set it up in my closet and edited the movie on Avid and then managed to get some assistant editing jobs to get me in the union. Um, I'd interned during college in post-production, so I had some nice connections from a movie called Gone Fishing. And... Um, Gosh, that all worked out. The assistant editing uh, segued into editing animation. And I did a movie for three years that never came out and had to do a step back and become an assistant editor, which I'm sure a lot of people have had to do at times. And was an assistant editor on Smallville and edited that. After, gosh, I was on that show nine years. So I think editing six of the nine. And bounced around the DC... Uh, shows, Arrow, and all of those before I started directing. Well, we're, we're going to go into all of that because that's, that's the nice little uh, condensed version. And I mm -hmm. love to just dive deep into all the various nuances and the steps. And um, one of the things that really frustrates me about this industry, and I know the people that are listening, and I'm sure you've encountered this as well, when you look at somebody that's in a position that you'd like to get to and you hear their story, you think, well, that's never going to happen to me. That is so unique to their circumstances. And there, there's no real blueprint. So, well, that's, it, it, there's no way it's going to happen to me. It happened to her. It's not going to happen to me. But I know that as somebody who's a fellow mentor, you can probably better break down all the various steps and kind of understand, well, this was really the takeaway from this transition or this one or that one. And I want to break all those down. But the first thing I'm really curious about is very rarely does somebody decide that they want to be a producer and then get in front of an avid and just not absolutely hate every moment of the process. Most producers would sit down at the avid and say, I can't believe I have to cut this. I'm going to muscle through it. I'm never doing that again. And yet here you are. So what was it about producing, transitioning to editing that actually made you say, you know what? I think I want to do this instead. Um, they paid me. Oh, well, that's, that's, <laughs> uh, that's certainly one thing for sure. Yeah, when you're producing indies and I was paying um, my crew $50 a week, that's a deal I made with a bunch of the unions. It, it was, uh, you know, you don't actually eat. So, because I could pay them $50 each a week, but not me. And $50 a week, I mean, imagine doing it, but it was, so like my DP had been a camera operator and to move up in the union, he was willing to work for that just to be able to get the credit, the AD, same thing. Like they all, everyone did it just to move up. So yes, I started to get paid for editing, but even in 
film school, I loved editing. Like that was my favorite part of it. I could spend hours just lost in telling the story. And um, we actually cut all of our film projects on film. And when I was I'll, an I'll intern- put it, I'll put a link in Wikipedia to what that is for all of our younger listeners. Phil. <laughs> yeah, because even when I was an intern and it, on the movie, it was a film movie. So we would sing dailies. You're gonna have to put pictures of what a bin looks like. So they actually know where the name came from on an Avid <laughs> and why things are in 24 frame. And we would sync the audio to the video. And that was my job. So I had cuts in my hands from all the razor blades having to do it. There's something very unique about a person that will sit in a small dark room with no windows, with a computer for hours at a time, that just has to work with little, little tiny bits of footage in this frame and that frame. Most people, it drives them crazy. So mm -hmm. what is it about the process that you fell in love with and said, this is really what I think I want to end up doing, at least at that stage of your career? Oh, it's the storytelling part because someone can shoot it. And so the writer writes it, the director then takes it, that story and creates their own vision. And then it comes into the editing room and we have to create a story with just what we have. And it's not always what the director wanted or what the writer thought it would be. I mean, I've taken scenes where it, it just wasn't working within the story and taken out 100% of the dialogue and told the story visually just from looks just to create something that actually was working to tell the bigger picture of the overall, let's say, an episode of television. So that's what it is. It's just all about storytelling. And that's what I liked about producing. It's the puzzle pieces to put together to create this really cool image. And in post, we do the same thing. We take these pieces that someone has created for us and then retell it in our own vision and hope we're somewhat close to what the director wanted. <laughs> So I'm sure then you've heard the saying that you basically make a movie three times. First you write it, then you shoot it, then you edit it. And all three are completely different than you ever envisioned. Exactly. exactly. And one of the things that I love about your perspective and the reason I wanted to bring you on is you're not, quote unquote, just an editor. You've produced, you've directed, you've edited, and you see how all of the pieces come together and it's such a collaborative process. Um, and I want to talk more about those transitions a little bit later in the episode. But now I want to learn a little bit more about this opportunity that you had very early in your career to work on an animated film. Because you were kind of like, yeah, I worked on this animated film for three years. It didn't go. But there are some really key details that really make this a lot of a, a juicier story than you let it, let it off to be. So talk to me more about this opportunity to edit this animated film for three years. So I, when I was in Florida in film school, I was an intern on a movie called Gone Fishing. The director of that went on to produce this animated film that he raised the money for and also wrote. And um, he had known that in the process of me moving to Los Angeles, I had had a lot to do with visual effects. My, it's, well, my ex-boyfriend started an effects company and I, had a, and I had a lot of hand in that. So he hired me to come in and help set up this animated film. And a lot of the reason I, I think is that I'm not afraid to ask stupid questions. And so even though I had no idea what I was doing, I knew how to put an animatic together because I'd done that in visual effects for commercials and such. But coming into this process, it was a vertical learning curve. It was so lovely. He trusted me. And also like we'd go into these meetings, I could ask anything because everybody knew I had no idea what I was talking about. So I would walk in and I learned about motion capture and facial motion capture. And this was the golden age of that. It was before Polar Express even came out. So we had built these, we raised $40 million. And so we built stages and I, would, I was involved in every single aspect of it, even though as an editor, that sounds really, really weird. But um, it, just the opportunity of him meeting me as an intern and getting to know me. And then we kept in touch through the years, knowing that I had worked on these visual effect movies as an assistant editor. Just that trust in bringing me in, it was lovely. It was like a $50 million movie, sadly, that I guess did not come out. 
Well, and that's the part that I find really, really intriguing. And I, I love this idea, first of all, that as an editor, you're somebody that loves to ask questions. I think that's very common of a lot of great editors is they're willing to ask questions that maybe are going to make them look stupid, but who cares? Ask the stupid question anyway, because if you can leave your ego aside, you're going to find a better result and better collaboration because of those questions that you ask. But what I can't imagine is having this opportunity. And it's not like, oh, it's this little side project. It's a passion project. It was $50 million. And you're thinking to yourself, oh my God, I have the lead editing credit on a 50 million. Oh, what do you mean it's not coming out? So I'd love to learn a little bit more and you don't have to go into any like juicy details or anything private, but what the heck happened? So this movie was um, based on the internet and in the late nineties, early two thousands, the internet tanked. No one actually thought it would continue, but we were funded by one, you know, Yahoo, Amazon, they were our funding sources. And when the, the internet fell, the money ran out and that's basically what happened. So they just all dried up. We had a, you know, huge, you know, data farms and we had built a building, but you know, you still need a lot of funding for that. So that's exactly what happened. So, well, it clearly sounds like this was perhaps the right film at the very, very wrong time. Because I'm guessing if it had been made just maybe five years later, would have been in a very different circumstance and scenario. I mean, who knows? Oh, yeah. It was totally groundbreaking. The people that we brought into it were people that had done tests to do. There was a movie that Jim Carrey was supposed to do that was animated. And they'd done years of tests to make the motion capture work and the facial motion capture work. And we brought in people from all of these technologies. Also, you know, we had developers in India just to create this technology that no one had seen before. And it, I mean, like, it was so new that the test is on me, like I'm the character. So I did learn that, you know, people who speak English don't move their upper lips. Oh, interesting. So now you're going to look at that. I'm sure I will be like, what's wrong with their upper lip? Yes. Um, (laughs) But and and then the the funny thing is, as you alluded to a little bit earlier, that ultimately became all the work that Robert Zemeckis did for years. And I'm assuming it's a lot of the same technology with Polar Express and Beowulf and A Christmas Carol. And now the things that James Cameron is doing, like, it just sounds like it was a little bit too early for its time. I think it was a little too early. And the, you know, when... The topic was really super cool. It was just about the internet and learning about the internet. Um, Again, sadly, now it's too late because everybody knows it. But yeah, uh, like my husband actually worked on it. That's how I met him. He he and I uh, set up the whole movie together. And um, he went on to do Polar Express and Beowulf and moved to uh, Sonoma County to work on those films up there with Robert Zemeckis. Wow. Talk about a small world. Yeah. Um, what I'm curious about now is how you handle that. Cause that's, that's gotta be tough to think I've got a calling card. This is really going to get me somewhere. And then somebody slams on the brakes. And it's not just a matter of you spent three years on a big movie that failed. You spent three years on a movie that nobody knew existed. That's a completely different atmosphere. So what was your mental state and how did you overcome that and just keep moving forwards? Yeah, it was, it was really hard because a lot of us put our lives into it. And um, to start, I mean, even the director, we all had to start over. So I just had to call everybody I knew. And yeah, that was like, hi, what do you have? What do you have? And I reached out to um, most of the people who had worked on the indie film that I produced because we had stayed, it was the first people I knew when I moved here. And um, one of the DPs of that, um, the camera operator, gave my name to a movie and I wound up editing a low budget horror movie called Shredder and (laughs) skiers killing snowboarders for being on their mountain. Um, (laughs) But ultimately the low budget movies, you know, you can't pay your mortgage. So um, a guy that I'd known forever since film school, he said, listen, I'm taking this TV show. I know you haven't been an assistant editor in a really long time, but it's a job and it's your union credits. And so I went and jumped in with that. And um, I'd never worked in television before. It's a completely different environment, Very, especially at the time. It was uh, <laughs> faster paced. Uh, at the time, the visual effects weren't temped out. They would just put a black title that would say, cool, whatever happens here. But since I came from animation, I could create all this stuff in the Avid. So I would just 
cut out little things and make stick figures and create all these temps in the Avid, which I don't know if everybody loved that I would do, the other assistant editors, because it really upped the game. But um, the producers then loved it. So then it was a whole different ballgame. And so for three years, I was his assistant. And it was harder because, you know, you make a lot less money. And, and TV pays a lot less than features. So um, it was a rude awakening. But it was on Smallville. And the people there were just lovely to work with. I still in touch with 90% of them. And my understanding is that when you worked on Smallville, it was just this little one and done superhero show and there was never going to be another one like it because superhero shows, nobody's really interested in those. Is that, yeah. Would you say that's fairly accurate? Yeah, I don't think anybody realized what the world was going to become at the time. I mean, Smallville had this huge following, but no one really knew what, what to do with that. And so then we tried the Aquaman pilot, which I edited. And um, that didn't go because that was what people aren't going to want to watch this stuff. And that's the year that Heroes went on to be the number one show. And after Heroes took off, like, that's when all of the shows took off. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're going to invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash Topo. That's T-O-P-O. So I, before we dive into all the stuff that you've done since, there's one, one little kernel that I think is really important to pull out of this. And it was the part of the story where you said at the time, the visual effects, the temp was just insert flying dragon here or whatever it might be, yeah. right? And you stepped in and you said, you know what? I think I can take this to a different level. You didn't necessarily build 3D comps and do the visual effect, but you just took it to that extra step to help them visualize the story, probably made it easier to come up with the timings or whatever it might be. But I think the key here is everybody else stepping in and saying, why are you doing that? You realize that's making us look bad. <laughs> and I, my guess is that's not the last time you stepped into a situation and said, I think I can add more to this. Would that be accurate? I don't want to make anyone look bad. <laughs> I don't want to make anyone look bad either. But one of the things that I talk about so often is that if you're somebody that wants to go the extra mile, that's within your control. It's not within your control how other people are going to be made to look if they don't want to put in the same effort. So what, I, what I'm trying to, to help people understand is you shouldn't be holding yourself back if you have ideas that can help enrich the storytelling process. You weren't there to make your other assistants look bad. You were there to provide value to the directors and the producers and the other editors. That's very early in your career. And my guess is that's a pattern that's led to where you are today. Yeah, and it's, 
I do everything I can. I like to be ultra prepared. I like to engross myself in the story. And a lot of people just go to work, but I'm never afraid to teach other people. So like the other assistant editors were like, oh my God, come in. At first, it, obviously it made their jobs harder because on Smallville, we only had three avids. So we had three editors, three assistants and three avids. So if you couldn't get on your avid, when are you going to build these tents? So that in itself was a hard thing. Once everybody started to realize what it did for the show, because you know we were cutting, we were actually cutting negative to match. So the shows had to finish early. So um, once we realized how much the timing was helping, everyone else would jump in. And I'm never afraid to teach people. It's like if you want my job, great. That means you'll work harder at your job. So that's everyone came in. We'd show them how to do it. I mean, I, I'll still do that. You, to this day, it's like, hey, you you want to learn this? Come on, I'll show you. There's there's so much work right now, you know. And I think that's a, that's a really important component of this because if you were the kind of person that said, I'm going to go above and beyond, and I'm going to make everybody else look bad, and as soon as they come in and say, hey, how'd you do that? Oh, I can't show you because then I can't be the the favorite or the one doing the extra work. That that's where I see the problem. But for you, you brought an idea. You weren't afraid to take it to the next level. And as soon as people felt like, wait a second, now I have to do that. Teach me. No problem. Let's all do this together. And I'm sure, and maybe you have or have not experienced this because I know you've had um, a group of people that you've really moved forwards with for a lot of your career. Maybe not all of it, but a lot of it. But it's very common in the editorial uh, space. And as you've been a guest director, you've probably seen this, where there's a lot of competition. It's like three separate islands of editors who can get the attention of the showrunner or the producer. I want this director to like me. And that it's, it's a competitive atmosphere, which I just don't get. Like, we're all making the same show. Why are we at each other's throats? Which is why I love your approach to it, which is, let me show you how to do this so we can all get better together. Yeah, it's funny. I've only worked on one show where the teams felt separate. I'm not very good at working on those shows. I went into a show and the other edit team had their doors shut and I was new. They'd fired an editor, brought me in to take over the end of this, you know, for the end of the season. And I just had never worked in an environment where people didn't just like go out to lunch and hang out together. So on the first day, I just walked into this editor's room, plopped on the couch and said, hey, where are we going to lunch today? And he just looked at me like, what are you talking about? And every day I just come in, hey, okay, so I found this place, let's go here. And then by this like first, second week, it became a thing and we'd all like hang out and go to lunch. And so I, I'm not really good at, I've never been in an environment where after a week or two, we all aren't family. And unfortunately, it's more common than you would think. And I love the fact that you haven't been exposed to it that much, but it is more common than you would think. The other crazy thing about your story is, what do you mean go somewhere for lunch? I thought lunch happened in front of my desk. How dare I go out for a break? There's there's just too much work to do. How can you possibly think it's okay to go out and grab lunch? Oh my gosh, your brain needs a rest. Your brain needs a rest. So sometimes just walking... You know, on uh, Supergirl, we started an every afternoon coffee walk. It wasn't long, but the editors and the assistants would just take a walk. And we'd all walk at a Starbucks or commissary coffee, whichever, whoever won that day. And it was so nice because then we would know, oh, where's your show? Oh, you're missing that? Oh, I just got a visual effect that you can reuse. You just might have to flop it, but why don't you put it in there? And we learned so much because you're just thinking outside the box. You're just you know, what are you working on? And so I don't know, like, I don't, the environments where people don't talk to each other. I, I just don't see how they work because I mean, so many times I have a bin like, okay, I can reuse all of these shots. And then I'm like, Hey, I made this bin, take it because you have this episode. You're going to save a hundred thousand dollars because you have arrows shooting in a close up in costume. You know, I, I don't know. Thankfully, I haven't I haven't been in those situations. And I think a lot of it is the, the reason you haven't been in it is because you don't foster it and you're fostering a different environment. And I think that 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 says a lot where a lot of times people just walk into the environment and accept, well, this is just what it is, right? I see everybody's at their desks and they're all eating. And nobody talks. So I guess this is just the environment. I'm very much a rebel and I've just walked in like, nope, this is not the TV show I'm working on. You, 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 we're going to lunch now. We're yeah. day one, let's set the tone. And some people are rubbed the wrong way. That's fine. Um, but I don't want to be part of an environment like that. Not because I'm selfish. It's because it's not conducive to the creative process. It's not setting me up to be the best creative version 
of myself and giving the best work that I can. And ultimately, that's why you and I are being paid. Exactly. And quite frankly, we spend more time with these people than we do with our spouses. I mean, I've spent more time in an editing room 12 hours a day and then driving home an hour and a half because I've commuted from Burbank. So if I'm not talking to them, you know, who, who am I going to talk to? So you form these bonds that if I, uh, yeah, I'm stumbling, but I think you're understanding what I'm saying that I just can't. It just, it just seems like, why wouldn't, why would you do that? Like, why, why wouldn't we just all be friends and work together? That's my feeling too. I just, I can't even comprehend it, but I've, I've actually been on shows where the creators, the showrunners actually fostered an environment of competition where they would give Mm -hmm. the same people the same scenes. And then they would choose. So they just created this environment of, well, if you want to stick around, you better beat him at this scene. And just like, no, this, this is not an environment for me. I I worked on a pilot like that. I was brought in for a couple of weekends to help out because the editor hadn't had a day off in 40 days. And um, they had me recut scenes and then they wanted to bring up what I cut and then bring up what he, he cut and pick one. And so after the first day of that, I was like, no, no, no. So I talked to the editor who'd like worked his butt off on this. And I was like, what are you trying, what aren't they, what are they bumping on? And what aren't you accomplishing that you want my help on? Because I'm here just to help you and to make this a really good story. I'm not here to take your job because I had a full-time job. I was working on the finale of Smallville during the week. So, you know. It was like on the weekends, I was helping out on this pilot. And so that actually helped the environment because he, I walked in the door, he didn't know who I was. And here he thinks I'm trying to take his job after, and you know, when you're exhausted and you're doing a pilot, you've been there 24 hours a day, you just, you don't think exactly straight. And then someone coming in to try to uproot everything you've done. Yeah. But it actually worked out. It worked out well. So. And again, I think your approach was, I'm just here to help. I'm here to provide value. I'm not here to compete and take all of your glory and get the showrunners or the directors to love me better than you. I'm just here to provide value and support. And again, I think that's such an important mindset to walk into a project with, no matter if it's day one or day 40 or otherwise. Um, what I would love to know next is going to, to where you were finishing with Smallville, which at the time, nobody's ever going to make superhero shows again. Clearly looking at your resume, that's not the case. So from that moment up until the point that you transition to directing, we'll get to that in a second. But what do you think some of the, or the main key is to you consistently going from one successful show to the next and building the resume that you had up until making the transition? It was all about connections, to be honest. I was really nervous about leaving Smallville because I only had that credit as an editor that actually anyone ever heard of. And um, so I was lucky enough that the creators of that created the Charlie's Angels series, very small. But uh, so I went with them to go do that. And then one of the writers from Smallville started a show called Perception. And when Charlie's Angels got canceled, he reached out and immediately hired me on Perception. And then from Perception, the editor that I sat on his couch and said, hey, let's go to lunch. He actually was on a show and he got a pilot and he called me and said, "Uh, I have this pilot. I'm about to start the show. Can you take over for me? And so it's all just been these connections and just putting myself out there. I love the writer. So I love to go and ask them questions and I invite them into my bay if the showrunners are not opposed to it. I think it makes them better writers if they know what their um, characters can say and can't say. And so I tend to get to know them. And a lot of that has really helped me. So I also keep in touch with people. I don't like to reach out to them when I'm looking for work because then they know I'm just looking for work. I like to reach out to them all the time. I I care about them as human beings. And so when I do need something for work, they know that that's not the only reason I'm reaching out to them. They don't dread that email. And that's this is such a key point. Like you've just, you want to talk about identifying the wound and shoving a knife in and just twisting and turning it. This is such a huge thing for people in our industry, specifically editors, because as you know, the majority are very introverted. They're kind of antisocial. There's a reason we chose small dark rooms to do our own work and are in peace. And the biggest thing is, well, I'm so busy 
So how can I maintain the habit of reaching out and connecting with people? I always feel like I get busy, I do a job, and then it's two weeks before, I'm freaking out about being unemployed. So now all of a sudden, everybody's my best friend, but I just feel like I'm using them and I'm needy and I'm asking for jobs. So what do you do to just make it consistent, even if you're busy and it's not about finding work and taking from people? Well, if I think about somebody, there's... Like recently I had a, I had a friend who's, my dad passed away in February and I saw that his father had passed away. We don't know each other very well. So, you know, I just reached out to him and said, I see that you're going through this. And so for like once a week, I would just send him a text. Hey, hang, or how are you hanging in? And so now we've gotten to actually be really good friends. Or, you know, you're in a conversation with somebody and you mention somebody you've worked with and you say, oh yeah, you know, this writer, blah, 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 blah. That keys that memory. So just say, Hey, I was thinking about you today. What have you been up to? Even, you know, and it's really nice when they say, what have you been up to? You know, like, Oh, I'm on this job. And I'm guessing that a lot of those, just that, that very simple outreach, which is about, I just honestly want to know how you're doing as a human being. I'm guessing that more than once that probably did end up leading to a job. Oh, I'm so glad you reached out because this one thing is coming up. You'd be a perfect fit. I'm so glad I thought of this. Yeah, people don't, people forget you. It's not that they don't love you and they don't love your talent. They just forget you. They've got a ton of stuff going on. Someone just handed them a hundred resumes. Everybody sounds great. And they don't know that you're unemployed. They just assume if they haven't heard from you, they assume you're employed. I actually have a friend who I reached out to him saying, hey, I, a friend of mine is looking for an editor. You know everybody. You know, who do you, do you ha- who do you recommend? And he said, me. And he's a huge pilot editor, huge, like does everything, does HBO. And I said, what do you mean you're looking for work? He's like, everybody thinks I'm employed right now. So I was like, yeah, I'll give your name, obviously. But it was just that minute of me reaching out because and he never said, oh, I'm looking. But I just happened to email him looking for somebody for something else. One of the things that I talk about uh, whenever I do speaking or I do seminars or in my program is I tell people that it's not about being the most qualified candidate. It's about being the most recent. You need to be yeah. at the top of their mind because I think we get it in our heads that, oh, I've, I worked this person two years ago, but it was such an amazing experience that of course I would be number one on their Rolodex. Why wouldn't I be? And I'm just going to sit and wait until the next opportunity. And they have a very organized spreadsheet of all the people they've worked in the past, categorized and organized by priority. And who's the first call? Who's the second? No, they're not. They're a mess. They're just thinking, yeah. oh crap, I need somebody tomorrow. Who, 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 oh, this person that I talked to last week, let me see if they're available. Just be the most recent in their mind. Yeah. Yeah. They, I actually, a friend of mine who's a pilot director, he showed me the amount of emails and texts that he was getting in a day because I was saying, you're not replying to this stuff. And I, I was cutting a pilot and I said, you're not replying. Like, I need to know this information now because we're building stuff that you need for set. And I, you know, I'm trying to cut it so that you know what you're going to do with the rest of the scene. Cause it was like, it was, it was a big visual effects thing. And, um, he would, he just showed me, he came into the cutting room after shooting all day and he showed me the amount of emails and approvals and stuff he had. So we started a code that in the subject, I would just write, must look at this tonight. And then he would know, but other than that, he knew that it's just information I needed him to have and he'd look at it on the weekend. So that's the people we're dealing with. If he's just the pilot director, imagine these showrunners that are trying to get the show together. They're looking at casting. They've probably got a hundred things coming in. They're looking at sets and it, it's just crazy. So yes, if you're not the last person there, they're not remembering what they did two years ago. And I think the other important factor of this too is when you are the person that's sending the message and you're not getting a response, the immediate assumption is, oh, I, I bothered them. They don't like me. Like it, it, I must not be the right fit. Like I, I could never follow up. And 99% of the time, this person would love to hear from you. They would love to help you. They've just got so much going on. You have to be willing to put yourself out there again and politely follow up, given some time. Like I've had people that have followed up with me 48 hours after and said, you know, I got to be honest. I'm really upset about the fact that I sent this nice email. You didn't follow up. Like that's kind of rude. I'm like, it's been two days. Would you like to see my inbox? Like nobody gets a response from me in less than two days. But we oftentimes make the assumption that lack of response means lack of interest. 
sometimes you just got to put yourself out there again and they're going to be like, oh my God, thank you for following up. This wouldn't have occurred to me. You're the perfect fit, but you got to put yourself out there. Yeah, how many times have you looked at an email and thought, okay, I'm out, but when I get home, I'm going to reply to this. And then a week goes by, you've completely forgotten about it. So and if nothing jogs your memory, there's no way. I mean, I do that with text messages. Someone will say like, I totally reached out to you. And it's like, oh my gosh, you did. You know, but you don't, everyone just has so much going on. And I think that's the one thing that social media and texting and emails has done to us. It's created this, we need to hear from you now. It's like everybody needs to take a chill pill. You know, if, if it's life or death, you're going to hear from me right away. But other than that, like, it's okay. Deep breaths, deep breaths. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of making sure that I'm intentional about the time that I'm responding to emails, to text, to social media, whatever it is. But as soon as somebody sends the message, it's like they're waiting for the little three dots, the ellipses. Are they responding? Are they responding? Are they yeah. responding? I'm like, I don't even get notifications. I've turned everything off so I can say, you know what? This is email time or this is text message or this is when I'm going to catch up with social media notifications. But I feel like so many people are in reaction mode. Ding. Oh, I got to do ding. Got to do this. You can't be creative. I mean, we're hired to be creative. We, it's our ideas that people are paying for. We can't generate them if it's our lives are dinging every four minutes. Yeah, most people know, like, especially when I leave to direct, that I disappear off the radar because I have to live in the story. And if I'm not living in the story, then I start to stress out like, oh no, do I have everything done that I need to do? But when I walk on the set with the cast, like, I, I want to have no, I want to be in the story. I want to be able to answer all of their questions. Where are they going from here? Where did they come from? What does this actually mean? You know, cause a lot of times they're, they're walking in and out of three different sets and the stories are jumping all over. They're walking from an episode that shoots, you know, that's like episode five and I'm shooting episode three. So it's, you know, that you just have to live in it. And I think that, yeah, if someone's texting me during that, there's no way I'm going to remember to get back to them. Exactly. So speaking of directing, this is what we will call the perfect segue to two uh, fellow editors here that are very good at transitions. Um, I now want to talk about the transition from editing to directing, because this is a very difficult transition for many people to make. And most people just assume, ah, it's never going to happen. Either it's not for me, or I'm a woman, or for this reason, or that reason, or one of the biggest ones, ah, it's too late. I'm too old. Yeah. It's, all, it's all the young people that are the directors, so I missed my chance. So talk to me a little bit more about your transition and how you made that happen. Sure. Um, I switched to 50. So you can, there is life after that. Um, but for me, I surrounded myself with some really supportive people. And when I was on Arrow, Mark Guggenheim was hugely supportive of me. He always pushed me to do bigger and better things. And then moving over to Supergirl, it was the same thing. Andrew Kreisberg also was very supportive of me wanting to direct. And then Greg Berlanti got involved and said, yeah, you want to do it? Let's make it happen. So it was really just those relationships and the trust. And I think it started in the cutting room because in the cutting room, I would say to them, I'm not afraid of ever losing my job because I can't work harder or try harder than I do. So when I'm saying to somebody, hey, I'm cutting this line, it's going to make it better. And I know they wrote it. I mean it. It's not like I'm insulting them and they know I'm not insulting them. So it came from a lot of trust in, in just editing. Because as you know, we get our episodes, sometimes they're 12 minutes too long. And making those decisions to cut it down are very, very difficult and still tell the story without making it look butchered. So I think it started really from that trust in knowing that I didn't hold back and I was very direct and honest with them. They were great. And then um, shadowing a lot. Um, the directors on Supergirl season one were in LA and so open and inviting. Um, if I would say, hey, eventually I want to direct, can I come to your set? There really wasn't one director who said no. Everyone said yes. Um, some of them would send me their shot list, which we don't generally get as editors. So that was really great. And I have combined a couple directors' shot lists to create what I use now. But um, it was just really having these great mentors 
when I would walk out, none of them made me feel small, insignificant, or that I shouldn't be there. Even though I might've walked out feeling, oh my God, what am I doing here? I'm an editor. There's a hundred people. They all know what they're doing. And are they looking at me like I don't belong? Because that is the hardest feeling. And it happens. Like I've, you know, you walk out, you're shadowing, you have no place to be there, no part in it. And, and you still gotta just smile and uh, hang in. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Well, you told me a specific story about this this time that you were just getting ready to do your first tech scout. And mm -hmm. you're like, so I guess I'm the director and I'm in charge. <laughs> so to talk to me a little bit more about that moment, because it's you're we're talking about this thing called imposter syndrome, where people just get it in their heads that eventually they're gonna discover that I don't know what I'm doing and I'm gonna get <laughs> fired. Like, so talk to me about this uh, this experience that you were telling me on this tech scout. Yeah, so when you're prepping on a show, you have all these meetings that are this small crew. It's like your DP, your AD, and you get to know them like family. They are with you all the time. But on the tech scout, it's the first time you meet the crew. And it's mostly dudes. Everybody looks That's at you. That's an understatement, I'm guessing. It is. But yeah, it, it's mostly dudes. And I just remember like, where do I sit on the bus? Who do I talk to? What do I do? What do I say? And the night before, I don't think I slept at all. Like I made sure I had all my notes and... Um, but they were just so great. The first time the AD just introduced me, shoved me forward. And, um, you know, here I am. I'm not, I mean, I'm five, seven, but I'm small. So <laughs> it was like, hi, <laughs> but it was great. I mean, I lost my voice cause I'm not used to speaking out loud and loudly. So, <laughs> but, um, yeah, that was, I think the scariest moment. And after that, and I realized that everyone there just had questions. They would just come over like, Hey, what are you thinking of this? Where do you want that? Which way is the camera going to feel? And then it's like, huh, okay, <laughs> I know these answers. And my guess is that uh, going all the way back to the very, very beginning of our conversation, you mm -hmm. took this mindset. I'm not afraid to ask stupid questions. I bet you didn't try to pretend that you knew everything. Something tells me you're like, you know what? I've never been here before. I bet the DP can answer this better than I can. I'm going to ask what he would do. Uh, in fact, the show I'm about to do, the DP has so much experience and we were talking about lenses. And I said to him, I'm like, I might just show you a picture and say, this is the look I want because I'm not necessarily sure if that's a hundred millimeter or 50 millimeter. That's what, he's an expert. He's been doing this forever. So I'm not afraid to just say, hey, this is my idea. How can we make this cool? Because I, I, I just, how do we make it cool? And I think that, that that's one of the major barriers for many people that want to transition into directing. You probably know more so than I, because you've actually made this transition, but it's this fear that I have to know everything. 
I now have to understand set design and production design and casting and lighting. Like I have to know how all of that works and have the answers. Otherwise, they're going to find out that I'm a fraud. And you don't have all the answers and somehow you're still successful. Well, the crews have been doing, you know, the people you're working with, you just have to have faith and trust them. And yeah, sometimes I sit there and I say something that is the dumbest question ever because I didn't realize that what that term meant. So, and I don't know all the terminology. Now I'm getting significantly better, but now I know the difference between a crane and a techno crane and a scissor lift. But at first I didn't. I just would be like, oh, I want one that does this and goes up and down. I, I, I didn't know. I'd never been on sets before. I mean, I come from post. We're in dark rooms. So um, you just have to not be afraid to look stupid or sound stupid. I mean, I'm not very coordinated, so I've fallen in mud on my face. Um, I'm also not afraid to get in there with the actors. If it's pouring rain out and I want them out in the rain, I'm standing in the rain. I'm not like in a warm tent. If it's snowing, I'm in the snow. Even, you know, if things are zapping. I've tried the wires for Melissa for Supergirl because I don't want to ask her to be in wires that I don't know how bad it hurts. I took archery lessons for Arrow. So, cause I had a new actress who hadn't been the new green arrow before. And I didn't know how hard it is to pull. It's hard. <laughs> so I took archery. It's been, it's fun. Like I just want to be able to learn. So I'm not afraid to say, how do how do you do How do you shoot that arrow? <laughs> and I think it's really important to really break that down and understand that you're willing to put yourself in somebody else's position so you mm -hmm. can see what they're doing from their perspective as opposed to, well, I don't really care, just this is what I need from you, without having that empathy for, oh, this is way harder than I thought it would be. Now maybe there's another approach where we can collaborate and solve this problem together because now I see what you're going through. That's fairly rare for directors, I believe. I don't know. You I would, only know. Th that's the funny well. thing about talking to directors. They say the same thing. I don't know any other directors. We never see each other. We're all busy. We're all working all the time. Well, it's kind of like editors too. Like I had no idea what other editors delivered as their editors cut. Until now. Yeah, until you and hit television. It, it, well, it's also vastly different from, like, I could, I've done, you know, multiple episodes of certain shows with different editors, and each editor delivers their editors cut completely different. Some people have a lot of music, some don't. Some have sound effects, some have temps. It's amazing what editors all, how they're all different. So I'm imagining it's the same with directors, too. So, I, I mean, I think it's the same, like, me walking in. The DP doesn't know who he's getting. He's doing every episode, but he doesn't know if I'm going to be like, no, I, I don't want that. I don't want to hear you. This is my idea. He doesn't know that until I'm there. But it's also the act, you know, you're asking everybody to give 100%. And so you just got to know what they're going through. One thing that I'm curious about, to go backwards just a little bit, I think it's, it's fairly simple to hear the story that you've told about the transition from editing to directing. For somebody to say, well, that was lucky. She was just around a bunch of people that wanted her to direct. Like it just happened for you. It's never going to happen that way for me. Something tells me that there was a catalyst for all of this. And this catalyst is the piece that so many people miss. So what was the very first catalyst that got this conversation started? Because my guess is this did not just fall into your lap. Oh, gosh, I don't know. I think it started with like me cutting scenes together and saying, oh, gosh, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to tell the story how I think the director wants or the writers want, cutting it together, slugging it out, sending it to set. And thank God the directors have all been open to it and not saying, oh, you're trying to tell me my job. They've all gone, oh my gosh, you're right. That'll make this better. Or, oh yeah, I wanted this to be a jump cut, you know. But either way, I think it started with that. And then I've literally walked on set before with my laptop, seen slugged out because they're you know, I tend to do all these big visual effects. So you have these empty plates, but then sometimes you need the real people so you can tie in the sides. So it's like, okay, I have this plate. It'll work with this and it'll tie to this. But if I just can get a close up of, you know, Supergirl right here, that'll tie this together and bring us back into the real world. And so it's just really, that was the catalyst. And I think that the people around me really saw that and uh, were like, oh, okay. and. You know, I still do that. Like when I'm editing, I'll video it on my phone. Maybe you're not allowed to and text it to the director saying, you know, hey, this is the scene. I tend to on the first day, though, send the look how great you're doing because um, this is a creative business and all of us are insecure. Like 
So even the most experienced directors are insecure. So it comes just that little video. I always send like, look at this amazing scene you just shot. And I send it to them before I send the, okay, so I really need you to grab me a close up of this. <laughs> so going back to this transition, once again, editor to director, we know that this had a lot to do with you putting yourself out there, asking questions, making the intention clear. I think I can do this and I want to learn shadowing everything else. Mm-hmm. But there's another perspective. Oh, yeah, you were just the token female hire. They just, they just needed to meet a quota. So what what do you say to that? Because I think that that's a very real argument that I think you've probably heard and is very much out there right now, especially I, in the zeitgeist. A lot. I've heard it so, a lot. So, so let, let's talk about, let, let's just take the gloves off and let's be honest and let's talk about this. Because you had some well, really good advice when we talked about this before. Okay, hopefully I remember it. Um, first of all, great. If someone gets me in the door and I'm the token female, fine. It's not what got me asked back and it's not what kept me there. But if it got me in that door, who cares? People say that to me, you have no idea. I'm losing work because of you. If they aren't bringing us in and letting us learn it, we aren't going to. It's a minority thing too. If you aren't hiring somebody, how are they ever going to learn it? So you just have to buck up and and do it. <laughs> so that that was, I think, the biggest advice. Um, but yeah, maybe I am the token female and the timing worked out fantastic. But um, I also have been editing for 20 years and telling stories for 20 years and tend to walk in knowing what I want. So, I mean, I've had a lot of people who are very entry level will walk up to me and say like, oh yeah, that's what, you know, you're here because you're our token female. And I'm like... Yeah, no, it has nothing to do with the fact that I've been telling stories for 20 years. So it's not like I, I come from, you know, beach cleaning. And I, the, the <laughs> thing that I think is so important for people to hear what you've already said, and I just want to emphasize it again, if I got the job because I was the token hire, great. The key is getting invited back. Nobody's yes. going to invite you back if you don't deliver, provide value, and you can't tell the story that they want you to tell. So sure, you might have walked in day one, and I don't believe that was the case at all, but let's, let's make that assumption. Let's make the assumption you got it just because they had to check a box off and, yep, got to have a female director this season. Let's just assume the worst. You, you're not going to be able to show up and not do the job and get hired back for a second episode because of that because they're not going to waste the money. So you yeah, clearly have to money. They don't hire you because they like you, at least not the second time. They might hire you the first time because you're great in a meeting or you're the token hire. But that, I mean, that has, I've actually taken a lot of general meetings lately. And they said, that's the one thing that they've wanted to meet me for is that they can see that I keep being asked back. And that's the key. It's also when I look at editors' resumes too, if some editors on something for one season and they're not brought back and you know, it's a long running show and they were off for a while, I think it's, it goes across everything. It's like, Hmm, something happened. And another thing that I've noticed too, not to go on too much of a tangent, but I've noticed and have worked with people and they will remain nameless because I don't want to call anybody out. But you see a whole bunch of amazing shows on their resume and then you work with them and you're like, but hold on a second. I thought you worked on this and this, but I'm looking at your cuts and I'm like, there's something off here. Then you see the pattern. It's all seasons where they were on for one season, for two episodes, for three episodes, but they're never asked back. So you can look at the credit list on a resume and make assumptions But I'm a big believer that if somebody has three shows and 15 seasons worth of three shows, that's worth a lot more than 15 one-season credits because people wanted to continue inviting them back. And that's what you focus on, being good enough that they're going to want me back over and over and over and not focusing necessarily on how I may have gotten there. Although in your case, I have no doubt that it had nothing to do with quotas because you clearly had built amazing relationships. Well, thank you. I hope so. so. The other assumption that I want to talk about, and I'm sure you've also had this happen more than once. Mm -hmm. Well, but this is a show that has stunts and action and visual effects. And this isn't really a woman's world. Is (laughs) is this a conversation you've you've been in the middle of at least once? I have, but the great thing is is that at least on the shows that I've done, a lot of them have been shows where they know me as an editor. So they know walking in the door that I that it's like, okay, this is the visual effects. It's actually my strongest part. So this is how we're going to break it down. This is how many times I'm going to use this shot. And I think it usually, they can assume that up until the first effects meeting. And then after that, it's like, okay. And then it, it calms down. 
which has been really nice. But I have had people try to um, explain to me like, okay, so if you whip pan off and then whip pan, you know, back on, it looks like one shot. And it's like, really? <laughs> Magic. Tell me more. How does the editing process work? I know. Yeah, I, I can only imagine the egg on their face when they look at your resume like, oh, wow. So I sounded like kind of an ass bringing that up. All right, never mind. <laughs> nah, we just laugh it off. <laughs> so uh, I'm curious about what your take is on this because I have a lot of people that have reached out and asked me this question, especially given the, the lack of work and everything else is going on. Um, do you think that ageism is a real thing? Is that something that you've encountered and is a real thing in Hollywood? Because there's so much focus on sexism right now and racism and everything else. But I feel like a conversation that's slightly lost is ageism. I actually really think so. (laughs) I don't think I've experienced it, but I don't know. Maybe someone didn't hire me because of it. I I just don't know. But I am the oldest person on set a lot of times. Um, And by the way, nobody would ever know it by looking at you. So Aww, um, that I'm 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 very very surprised by that. Like you, uh, <laughs> just your your energy and the way you speak. And I mean that even though this is an audio podcast to the listeners, like you definitely have taken very good care of yourself. Oh well, thank you. I mean, but to start directing at fifty, I shadowed at fifty, and my first episode, you know, walking out there, it was crazy because who'd have thought you can start over? But you know, three years later, fifty three, still kicking. Don't know how long it'll take for me to get all the benefits like the editor's guild because I have the 20 some odd years there, but uh, <laughs> can't promise that. I don't know if I need 20 years, I'll, I'll be another 17 years. That means I'd be 70. I'm not sure about that. Um, but there definitely, I think, is some ageism. I, I, I don't know how it is portrayed. I do know that maybe they think if you're older school, you don't understand a lot of the newer technologies. But I'm hoping that, thankfully, that I've kind of avoided that. But, uh, you know, uh, I do know I'm always older. <laughs> and I used to be the youngest one, which is crazy. <laughs> but uh, I feel like the one of the keys here is you don't carry yourself as the old, out-of-date, crotchety director. Like, you come in vibrant, full of energy, young, ready to learn, ready to ask questions. So I feel like even though on paper, biologically, you might be the old, oldest person there. My guess is there are people that are biologically much younger than you that you're running circles around with your energy and your enthusiasm. Oh, yeah. You have to walk out smiling every day. I mean, the cast feeds off of it. If you walk out tired, they the whole everybody shuts down. So like I have, um, I don't have them up here. I bought bright red glasses because you won't be able to see my smile when I'm directing um, because I need something to like poof, you know. <laughs> I try. Thank you. Well, I want to be very, uh, very respectful of your time. We're both uh, time management experts um, as people that uh, time is our entire livelihood. But I do have one more question. For anybody that's listening, no matter the stage in their career where they're trying to make a level up, trying to make a transition, whether it's producer to editor, assistant editor to editor, editor to director, what would you give as the best advice, the area where they need to focus their attention to make that transition happen? Let people know that's what you want. If no one knows it, how are they supposed to figure it out? So ask for what you want, work your ass off. I couldn't say it any better myself. (laughs) That's the advice that I give people all the time. You have to be intentional about what you want and people around you need to know it. The only thing I might add is to also be specific. Because if you say, I'll do anything, well, that doesn't help anyone. But if you say, here's my unique ability and here's how I can provide that value to you. And by the way, I really want the opportunity to do that. And again, like we talked about, oh, didn't even occur to me, but you know what? You would actually be a really good fit for this, but you have to make it clear that that's what you want. Yeah, I completely agree. Ask for what you want. No one else is going to assume it. And yeah, I guess you're right. Be specific about it. Even if you're just starting out. I mean, I have so many people, I teach students once a year and they're like, we just want to work in the business. Well, it's like, well, I can't really help you then. Yes. If you, if you expect people to help you, you have to make it very clear how they can help you. That's a, that's a really, really big part of the process. Is I, I firmly believe that the vast majority of people that have gotten to where you want to be, they want to help you get there too. There's always this idea of, oh, well, they're up there and people want to keep me down here and nobody wants to help. I don't believe that. I vastly and firmly believe people want to help you. The problem is you're not making it clear how they can help you. I, there you go. <laughs> well, this has been absolutely lovely. 
Uh, I can't believe how quickly this went. I can't believe it's already been well over an hour. This is just- I know, I can't believe it either. So much fun. It's just like getting lost in a small dark room and cutting away and you're like, where did the time go? So uh, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking this time, especially given that you're going to be disappearing off into the ether for months uh, going to your next directing gig. So I just got super lucky grabbing you at the the right place at the right time. Um, If somebody wanted to reach out, connect, learn more about you, is there a place that we can send them just to find you and, and start that? first connection yeah i have a i have a website andy armaganian if they can spell it.com and we'll we'll put Um, a link in the show notes as well so they don't have to worry about that but i just i want to make sure it's okay that if somebody's inspired by you they feel that it's all right to reach out and start that first connection oh yeah they can reach out they should just write in the subject so that it doesn't get lost because i do get a ton of mail but yeah they can reach out to me no worries awesome well this has been an absolute pleasure and once again i cannot thank you so much for taking the time to be here and share your wisdom with my audience today. Well, thanks. And it was nice to see your face. Yes, (laughs) you too. You take care. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.